all these fuckers that want to get all pissed off at me that I push Mongo, I still beat most of them in the street contest so they can go suck a fucking dick. Danforth, and you know what? You're listening to Talking Schmidt. Holy cannoli. It's cool, like tonight is the night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, big dog's in. Do we really want to be here? No, everything's changed. We on? Schmitty? Talking Schmidt. Talking Schmidt, dude. <laughs> You're going to come out different. <laughs> shit, my pants, man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. Holy shit. It's right. about the one, the one, the one. Who is this guy? He thinks he's tough shit. What's up? Come on, Schmitty, what the fuck? Tell the skateboard police to come get me. What is happening? I'm here for Greg Smith. Yes. Okay, if I told myself when I was buying my skateboard decks back in the 80s, working at GoSkate, that one day the guy on the bottom of my board would be on my podcast, I'd say, what the fuck is a podcast? (laughs) But I'd also say, no fucking way. Today's a great honor for me talking to another legendary skater, pro for Alva. I had many of his decks back in the day. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bill Danforth. How you doing? I'm good, man. Hey, you know, still trying to live the skateboard dream. And, you know, it's like not one that you ever forget. It just keeps growing day by day. How's it? uh, The aging with it is kind of the trick, right? Like, it's like the older you get, you kind of got to change oh my body's hurting a little differently it doesn't you just don't quit doing it though no it's what you started i mean i always said man there's a lot of times that if i could have skateboarded before i'd walk i would have skateboarded before i walked but back then in 1966 when i was born we didn't necessarily have a skateboard around (laughs) What, what, how did you get into skate? What you, you were born where? Born in, in near Detroit? Detroit, Michigan. Yes. I had two older brothers and skateboards, you know, were like 
things that were kept in the toy box. And you just ride them as a toy, and then you go grab a scooter or you go grab something else. But my brothers, they ended up leaving and they left all these skateboards behind. And I'm like, well, all right, this is the next thing out of the toy box. Wow, this is fucking cool. I'm going to take this to the extreme. I knew that when I was nine years old. Ah. You just felt it and was like this. Fuck the other toys. This is the one. for This me. is the coolest thing ever, you know, and the fact that, you know, it was all the freedom. It wasn't like playing baseball or playing organized sports. It was hey, nobody can tell you you're doing it wrong because nobody had done it right then. Right. Yeah. What was the what was it like in Michigan? Like I mean, you, you're dealing with a lot of different weather extremes and stuff. Were you just like the only one for a while or was there other kids that were getting into it? Well, what was cool is like, you know, you'd see another skateboarder somewhere and it was like, wow, I just found this fucking oddball out there somewhere that shares the same interest I did. You know, equipment progressed. More skateboarders came out of that scene at the time of just seriously just kids riding parking lots you know skate parks weren't built at that time and we're talking you know in the the mid 70s uh-huh but you know the the biggest burst we got was when the first skate park opened in michigan and there was a place that we could gather people from more than just our local neighborhood as opposed to all the other neighborhoods around and the skate park was our uh meeting place it was our high school well what did that park have oh we had bowls we had snake runs we had freestyle areas um you know it was a big one comparable to like a del mar or something similar not as big it was called the endless summer skate park okay but um that was basically where we all formed our roots you know we were the es boys we ruled that park we had other rival parks on the other side of town but no we were golden and true to our skate park and we kept our roots is that where you kind of started developing like I'm doing this. I'm doing this all of a sudden. I'm looking at myself going like, I'm pretty good at this. Like, cause you're skating the park all the time. Uh, well, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, back then it was about like entering contests and seeing how well you did. Nobody thought about sponsorship. Huh. It was way too early in that. You never thought that a California company would send you free product. And it wasn't till the companies in California sent product as prizes for contests. And let's say it happened to me. I won a My Smith Madrid board. And I'm like, wow, I really like this deck. Wrote it, got some pictures on it. Hit up Madrid when everybody else was getting sponsored. And I'm like, look, I, I really like your product. And next thing you know, in 1981, I was sponsored by Madrid. Was that your first sponsor? That was my very first sponsor besides my local skate park or skate shops. 
So that's sick. Like, so basically you were skating a contest, you won the Madrid as a prize, you were hyped on it, and then you sent them some photos of you riding it and were like, what's up? And, and it worked out. Yeah. And Madrid was one of the ones that really said, hey, we can sponsor everybody in California up and down, you know, the coast. But hey, let's take a chance and sponsor some of these people from, say, the Midwest or you know, they took the chance. And you know what? It really curved well for Madrid at the time because we got a lot of good people out of there. Mm-hmm. They had Kendall. They had Roscoe. They had Jinx. I got Kerholsky on the team. We had a lot of people that, you know, went on even after Madrid to have extremely huge sexual, successful careers. Mm-hmm. But they all started in Madrid because Madrid gave people the first chance and took the challenge. And while it might not necessarily have paid off in Madrid, but man, they were the ones that, you know, rolled the red carpet out to people that weren't just in California. Were you aware of the mags back then? Oh, yeah. Thrasher, Skateboarder Magazine, actually now... Um, you know, you'd always get the crazy offshoots like Wide World of Skateboarding and all that other stuff. But if there was a skateboarder on the cover of a magazine back then, you bought it. <laughs> you had to, you know, because it was fucking cool. It was a skateboarder. We were outcasts. We got looked down on everybody. We weren't doing any damage. We weren't doing anything. We just weren't playing baseball we weren't playing football we were just being fucking independent that goes into the fact of where our music came from Mm -hmm. because we were going to listen to old boring old rock and roll no Mm -hmm. we're going to create our own we liked what everybody else hated and the radio didn't play So you, I didn't know you were on Madrid. Was who were who was? It was Mike Smith. Was the pro? Was there any other pros at that time? It was Mike Smith, and you know they had done a bunch of longboards. Roger Hickey, who was a famous Don Heller. Was Bryce on there at the? No, this is way before before Bryce. that. Okay, you know there came the, the like probably eighty three. 84, then Lucero put a model out on them. Shout out. Ken Park had a model. But, you know, I mean, Madrid didn't really start with too many names at first. They just started with a tradition of making a quality skateboard and having a small team because they manufactured for a lot of other companies at the time. So Madrid was their family name. And it was their company name when it came to their skateboard line. Mm. But they really they really did manufacture a lot for a lot of other companies. Who were you like in the early stages? Who were the people you would see in the magazine reoccurring that you were most stoked on? Like, who are your dudes? 
I mean, that even goes back, you know, into the 70s. It's like, you know, obviously people seeing like Tony Alva. Yeah. Jay Adams, you know, Hackett, Olsen, uh, Steve Alba, Mickey Alba. It was like the boys that were, you know, on the edge. And then when it came into the later 70s, when, quote, even those guys were like getting older. Then it was the Dwayne Peters. Yeah. You know, and he just changed skateboarding and punk rock into his own crazy Dwayne Peters style. But you know what? People love Dwayne. I love Dwayne. He's crazy fuck. <laughs> but, you know, that's how he wants it. Yeah. And that yeah. attitude was what kind of drew us to this stuff was not being like the average you know the everyday dude was there people back then that were considered kooks like were you like in those early days was there like let's just say it was like jay adams or tony alva like it was like that's our guy that guy sucks like was there that or not really okay there was that to the little point of it but you got to look at like the the population of skateboarders back then yeah you might be from LA or you might be from San Diego. You might have a beef about something, but you know what? You guys were skateboarding, right? You're skateboarders. Now it's like you see these campus cruises on fucking longboarders skating down the sidewalk. <laughs> They're the fucking kooks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and skateboarding went 30 years before the word kook got used. And then all of a sudden you use the word kook because you got all these fucking lawyers riding fucking longboards. Yeah, I saw one eat shit today on a scooter. It was like a schadenfreude moment. I was like, oh, that made me feel good. <laughs> you know, it's like one of these things. It's like you can't just live stuff for like, you know, a decade. You can't just say, wow, I skateboarded for 10 years and I gave it my all. Mm -hmm. No, fuck you. Skateboarding's lifetime. Right. You live it and you do what you can to the fullest at every extent. The older you get, the more injuries you have. You just don't quit doing it. Right. I heard that uh, Neil Blender gave you a phone call to get you on tracker. Is that right? Yep. He called and left it on an answering machine. And he's like, that was 1982. And he said, this is Neil Blender. I'm the team manager now at Tracker. Um, we need your address because we need to send you some trucks. We are now sponsoring you. <sighs> wow, that's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> did you at all think it was a prank call or were you pretty sure? Like, it was like, how did you feel when you got it? Were you like, ah? No, because you know what? Back then, there was no caller ID, there was no nothing. Uh -huh. It was just legit because Stacey Brother was the one that told fucking Neil to put me on the tracker team. Wow. I had been writing letters back and forth to Stacey Peralta and he always answered me. That was so cool about Stacey Peralta. Damn. Yeah. Wow. And then how did you end up getting hooked up with Alva? Uh, well, after like some issues went down with Madrid, it was just one of those things. 
I had been with Madrid at that point, like almost five and a half years. And I got an offer from Tony Alva to come ride for him. And I'm like, you're my idol. You know, I had pictures of you on my wall. How can I say no? Right. I just couldn't. And, you know, I had even, you know, said things to Madrid, like, look, I got this opportunity. I gave them the, the chance to say, oh, no, stay with us. And they were like, we're not going to stop you. I think this was, would be a good thing. You know, so it's like I never burned any bridges with any companies anywhere. I always gave the people that gave me the first chance. You know, you dance with the person that brought you. For, you know, I, I'd ask them for advice. Uh-huh. You know, I, I didn't know where, you know, Madrid was going at the time. Um, but here I had a chance to ride for my fucking idol. Huh. And we fucking punked rock that Alva Posse like nobody else. Oh, my God. It's so legendary. The pictures burnt in your fucking brain. (laughs) Yeah. I'm wondering how it all like, how did it happen, though? Did he see you like just skating at contests and stuff or like it just seemed interesting that like you kind of were almost like they had a mold of dudes and you weren't that mold. Like everybody was a long hair and not you. And then you were like more the punk guy. They were all kind of styling, but like it all worked. It was just interesting that you ended up being that one guy that kind of broke that mold. It wasn't about fashion at that time. It was about thrashing, Uh you know, and it's like we'd all hook up at Del Mar and we'd go chase the skate park for a while. And then somebody like Duncan would be like, Hey, Danforth, man, we got some pools. You want to go ride some pools with us? So, like, the more I hung out with Duncan and Delgado, the thing is, it's like how I really got on Alva is I wasn't part of their crew, but I went, you know, if they're like, hey, we got, you know, empty pools, we got places to skate, and they invited me to go skate those. I skated with those guys. Those dudes are like down, you know? It was just like one of these opportunities that just seriously comes out of the blue. You know, it's not like every day somebody comes and says, hey, can you go skate for your idol? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's like I made a snap decision and I I was like, yes. And then, uh, you know, I made that call to Madrid and I said, look, I had this other option. I already took it. And you know what, of everything that I had done with and for Madrid, they gave me nothing but 100% positive enforcement on that. They're like, just do it. Oh, sick. You know, so there was no animosity, you know, especially in the 80s when people would be, you know, company jumpers and you stick distributors and all these people with, you know, a million boards with a old logo on it. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't unfair to anybody okay did you have a board on madrid yeah i had a long selling board on madrid and i turned pro for madrid in um 85 the oceanside contest i got third place in that oh damn sick nobody was even gonna pay my entry fee and i'm like screw it i'll pay it 
Was that the first contest kind of that Gon showed up at? The one that had like, it was yeah. in the stage and stuff? Yeah, it was, uh, it was funny because I had skated amateur for so long, even in California. Huh. Uh, that I'm like, screw it. I was working a tracker. The contest was down the street. I'm like, look, I'm turning pro for this. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, go ahead. And I got third place. Damn. Then everybody was like, wow, fuck, you were serious. And I'm like, hey, actually, back then, I didn't even give a fuck. <laughs> I wasn't looking for a model. I wasn't looking for anything. I'm just like, I'm going to show all these motherfuckers that some dude from the Midwest can come out and smoke you, motherfucker. <laughs> what was the first graphic you had on Madrid? It was the Misfits logo. Uh. It was Jerry only in Doyle and dancing. And dancing tried to sue me for the graphics. Oh, he did? Yeah. That, but that, that makes sense. Good luck on that one, dickhead. Come on, dancing. Bring it on these days. I got a great dancing story when uh, Jake tried to interview him. The publicist told Jake before the interview, he's like, he's down to do the interview, but he does not want to talk about the misfits. So Jake got on the phone. He's like, hey, uh, Glenn, blah, blah, blah. So what was up with the misfits? And he just hung up on him. <laughs> is, that, is that real? Hey, uh, this will be great. Fuck you, Glenn Dancing. Your mom's <laughs> address, if she still lives there, which... I'm sure she's gone, but it's 35 MacArthur Place, Lodi, New Jersey. Do we really want to be here? He used to send me records. He used to send me T-shirts. He used to send me packages for the Fiend Club all the time and always used his mom's address. Ah, uh, okay. He was he was like me. He's printing in his garage right now, the same way I am. Don't tell the loud one. <laughs> so when you turn pro for... Uh... I mean, when you went to Alva, though, that first pro board that you had for Alva, that graphic, in my mind, that's what I thought your first graphic was. That was the board that I ended up having at least three or four of those. The Circle of Skulls. Yeah. Who did that graphic? All right. A guy named Mad Mark Root, who was an L.A. Um, punk rock artist and... He did the Earth AD album for the Misfits. Same guy, right? Okay. Yeah. He did a lot of artwork, but you want to hear a really funny story about my first graphics? Yeah. I originally drew the concept of that graphic. Then it got sent to Alva. Um, Jeff Hartzell mocked it up. He did it. The graphic didn't really come out the way I wanted it to turn out, but the concept was good. So T.A. hooked up with Mad Mark Rude in Hollywood. Ah. And he's like, I'll take that concept. And he put his punk rock style into that. Okay. Then he fucking OD'd one night while he was drawing that and drooled all over the graphics. So all that ink smeared. So it had to be redrawn for the second time. Oh, shit. Okay. Not a lot of people know that. Some people do, but that is the God's honest truth on that one. And that became the best selling graphic I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was at the same time as those crazy tales. Like Alva came out with those, like what they call them, tri tales or whatever, right? 
Oh, yeah. We thought we'd teach everybody to ollie higher, and I still hey. don't even know how to ollie. <laughs> hey, we bought into it. We thought we could ollie six inches higher on those things. Yeah, just like we told all the chicks every day at fucking demos. Yeah, we're six inches bigger than you think. <laughs> uh, who would you travel with mostly? Like when you traveled, um, you know, with Alva guys, would you room with somebody consistently? Like who was my favorite one was Murph. Murph. Yeah, Murph was great. Um, I traveled with uh, Chris Cook a lot with Hartzell, with JT. Um, it was always cool, like, when TA would join us. Um, but uh, I did a lot of other travel with people like Eric Dressen. Ah, uh, okay. Eric, Eric Dressen and I traveled a lot. It was usually, like, when we went um, overseas, they didn't want just everybody from Alva. Mm-hmm. They wanted maybe one Dogtown guy, one Alva guy. Craig Johnson and John Gibson. I went to Australia and Tahiti with. And that's when Living a Dream began right there. They were a blast because it was just me hanging out with the Texans. They're the best. Of all the horror tour stories that people really ever heard, they weren't from the Alva team. You know, we we were a brotherhood. We had each other's backs. Not necessarily where every other team did not every other team were as close as you know we all were right what's the uh story about fred smith saving some kid's life oh well the chicago story you've done your homework (laughs) and this goes back to the alva photo and this was unprompted you know it wasn't set up we we're just all going to go to the Ohio skate out, but we we're all going to meet up in Chicago to hang out with Stevie dread. We were going to go ride the turf up in Milwaukee. Mm. Then we were going to go down to Ohio skate out the next night. So the Alba team gets together. We, you know, went and skated the turf and we came back and the photo shoot was shut was set up that we were going to do this, but nobody said, "Hey, wear leather jackets." You know, stand here, stand here. It was random. They took about thirty six pictures, you know, with different people in different locations, but nobody said anything to anybody. Like, "Hey, move over here." No. It wasn't choreographed, right? We all chose that photo that night and we're like, that's a photo. And it's got, it's got every, it's got all of us in it. It's the one. Yeah. So then we go to the subway to go back to, you know, the apartments we're all sleeping in and we go get on our train and some dude is choking. Fred Smith. First thing he does, he pulls out a fucking comb. Shoves it in the dude's throat and pulls his tongue out. Oh, that was how fucking we saved somebody's life that night. We were fucking not in our right mind, if I can say that politically correct. <laughs> but the thing is, everybody jumped into fucking action. Uh, it was just saving a human's life, you know. 
That's amazing. I I just talked to Fred a couple months ago. He seems like he's doing pretty good. Like I was hyped to catch up with him. He's uh he's been uh, laying off the sauce and he's like doing a bunch of tattoos. You talked to him at all lately? Yeah, yeah. No, I Fred is like you know he's another one that I love to travel with. I was just bummed that I didn't get enough time to travel with Fred. Ah, but um, you know. My company, American Nomad Skateboards, is in Connecticut. He's Fred's only in Rhode Island or in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. So when we have our annual barbecue, he gets he usually comes and hangs out. Ah, uh, okay, Rad. So I get my whole year's worth of Fred Smith and yeah, he's in got an afternoon. A lot of fucking charisma. <laughs> well, it's just funny because you know what we can be. 15 year old kids again with nobody judging us ah yeah you know that's what i love about it we're we're all in our 50s and 60s and when we see each other we're all 15 right yeah which is really cool because it keeps it keeps the dream alive i mean the special friends are the ones that you don't have to see or talk to and then you do see them and you haven't skipped a beat you can just get right in there and have a blast and continue where you left off right talk the same old stories and everybody (laughs) acts like they're brand new and you you hear a new one and somebody says oh you're getting old you don't remember that one (laughs) then we all tell each other to go fuck themselves and (laughs) uh I got a tough question for you. Maybe it's not tough, but I think it's tough. Who has the best front side rock? Eddie Elgar. Eddie Elgar. He fucking invented it. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jerry Valdez. You claim to get the the first front side rock and roll, but man, nobody did with style like Eddie Elgar. Right. The Elgato. The pictures burnt in my brain from all the old skateboarder magazines. He was the one that encouraged me to want to learn those. Okay. What about that weekend in Florida? Here, I did a little more homework at the Kona contest. I read you got wrestled down and somebody wrote hate on your forehead. There yeah, was a- that was Chris Malcolm because we hated everything. We came down from Detroit and we were fucking complete like 14, 15 year old assholes. Uh-huh. And we're like, we're not going to take shit from these fucking Florida people. We're not going to take shit from anybody. We're Detroit punk rappers. It was like one of those things where, you know, going from the East Coast to going to the West Coast and show up to California, everybody welcomes you to come out there. And as soon as you get out there, they treat you like assholes. And you, you got to go out to the West Coast and be an asshole to get actually treated properly <laughs> it was a fight back then in mm. the 80s you didn't just walk into somebody else's turf without being able to curve yourself uh-huh you know so i'm just out there and i'm like well fuck it hey i live in a car in the delmar parking lot uh, i work a tracker and i live in my car up a tracker um some of you know who i am some of you don't but well fuck it we're all skateboarders. Yeah. How long were you living in your car? Probably 18 months the first time, another time, another like 28 months. Uh, yeah, I lived in a lot of crazy places. <laughs> yeah. 
What you got? And trees, tree houses. Um, <laughs> you know, Winnebago's that were like parked in front of a tracker building. This is all in California. No, across the country. Where, where was you the know? tree house? Tree house was in fucking Tennessee. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. I had electricity. Like I said, I'm the American nomad. People like me and GSD and when I lived in San Diego, it's like, fuck, sometimes you, you know, sleep at the beach and you sleep in fucking caves until fucking, you know, the tide comes in. Then, you know, it's time to get to work. Like I said, I'm trying to not work. I wanted, I wanted to talk to you about the Chicago skate off or the Ohio skate off. All right. Shoot. There was a moment you had like an acid drop off a big ass. Like, do you remember that that whole yeah, day situation? Yeah. Was that spur? Was that spur of the moment? Like in the moment, Ex- like or d- had you been thinking about it? Like I'm gonna my last run. I'm gonna do or like how'd it go? No, I did it seven times. Oh, okay. <laughs> what happened is um, my two qualifying rounds. We're very borderline. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, you know, that ain't going to get me in there. So somehow I qualified for the finals. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm, I'm, I look at the course and I said, what's the craziest thing I could fucking do? And I looked at that. I'm like, I'm going to drop the fuck off that. And people went fucking nuts and then I did it again and then I did it again you know I had a, a skate shop at the time in Dayton Ohio named Bill Danforth Skate Shops ah. that was my hometown at the time and it's like fuck I gotta do something that will put me in like skateboarding history in Dayton wow that did it did that get you? Where, where'd you end up in the contest? Did that put you? <laughs> I say, ended up where I qualified at, at eighth. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But I sold so many skateboards. I sold so many fucking everything from that because at that time, that was the craziest thing that people had seen. Right. Yeah. I remember that vividly. I was like, Damn. and then. The funny part about this is, okay, that was the days of like going and doing like street demos and parking lots mm-hmm. in front of skate shops. Mm. I had all these skate shops that would build like a 12 foot park platform <laughs> and expect me to roll off that every day. <laughs> I'm like, no, that, that wasn't part of the plan. They see it. They want to see it in their town. That's how it goes. It's like, you get cursed by doing something super amazing and then everybody wants to see it on their version. You're like, yeah, I did it. It's good. It's like poor Tony Hawk. Everybody wants to see him do a 900 every day. Yeah. On a quarter pipe, whatever they got in the back. <laughs> what about Savannah S- Slamma? Oh, well, you got an alarm? Uh, maybe. You gotta, you gotta bail. Yeah, can I hear you back after? I think we got. Yeah, no, be safe. Okay, okay, I'll hear you back in a few. 
to be my homie now you act like you don't know me as we were all saying goodbye to consolidated skateboards who had a 30-year run i noticed that tony hawk decided to invent a new trick for howie mandel the issue i have isn't with naming it after the comedian i got love for mandel the issue as i see it is naming it something that already exists the howie slide what's the howie slide howie slide is a alley-oop backside body parallel to the Howie Slide, which was invented by friend of the show, featured in episode 138, Mr. Brian Howard. What is the Howie Slide in your eyes? Well, the Howie Slide in my eyes, I guess, is uh, is the trick that I did a long time ago. Um, the front side, front side lip slide, but you go straight to hanging up. And, you know, I, I always call it the truck slide because I didn't want to Mike McGill and wear my own T-shirt. But Sinclair named it the Howie slide because he's almost strictly called me Howie for 30 years. And what year was that? That trick was probably 1991. It's been a while. And so basically yours is you slide into a lip slide where the back truck's like locked in. So you're kind of like it's kind of like what you wouldn't want to do. Right. And, And then sliding on basically your base plate, like in the front of the hanger. Which, okay. yeah, which okay. would normally make you make you eat shit. How do you feel about this? Tony's got like an alley-oop body varial or something. Lip slide, I think, is what it kind of looked like to me that he named the Howie slide. Yeah, I mean, it's a different trick. But I, all I got to say is I could do my Howie slide before Howie Mandel could do his Howie slide. <laughs> I could do it tomorrow. Get me to a vert ramp. I could do it. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that means out there, but. Tony Hawk skated with you doubles, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why I was, I was a little shocked. I saw that whole thing too. I was, I, I'm surprised you forgot because I think we did two different combos of stuff. Um, one of them I was doing the Howie slide, I believe under a 720, if I remember right. Wow. Yeah, it was. Uh, it you was guys won. You guys got first. Yeah, we won. Um, I'll send you that picture of the check that I have. <laughs> okay. My dad, it was in my dad's closet. Now it's on my kid's wall. But yeah, it's big doubles contest. And I think we did two different combos. One of them was that Howie slide under 720. We won. I got the check. I can't believe I forgot. Well, here's what I suggest. And I also want to clarify that I have nothing but the utmost respect for Tony Hawk. It's like, this is, this is not like fuck Tony Hawk in any sense of the word. It's just same here. It's just that. Uh, it's just skateboarding, looking out for skateboarding, much like, you know, I, I figured Tony wanted to change the name of the mute air. So he won't be opposed to us changing the name of his Howie slide and what, and, and I got respect for Howie Mandel. I seen him stand up 1989 circle start theater, San Carlos. So I'll, I want him to have his trick if Tony wants to make a trick for him. And so here's what I'm suggesting. You guys can email in what you think the best name is for that trick. We'll send it over to Tony and then he can pick a winner and hopefully rename the trick. That sounds fair. 
Sounds because good to me. I mean, I, I want to keep the original Howie slide, the original Howie slide. I, mean, I think it, it deserves a little uh, a little credit, a little respect. <laughs> we might have to get Sinclair involved. Yeah, he'd have, he'd have an opinion for sure. I just wanted to bring that to the attention and uh, we'll see where it takes us from here. Have a little fun with it. And who knows, maybe it had actually come to fruition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got some texts and some messages and stuff then and. I was talking to somebody the other day and they mentioned the, the whole trick and they said that their quote was actually uh, the sun rises in the east. Uh-huh. So uh, it was first. I like Mine that. Was first. Sun rises in the east. That was a blaze blueing quote, too. Well, you have any uh, suggestions for uh, this new trick? Did you see what it is? It's like an alley-oop lip, but it's uh, a body burial in the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw it. What, what do you think? I got a couple uh, suggestions, but what do you do? You got any suggestions? Like I was thinking they could name it the Mandel, the hand washer, the germaphobe or the deal or no deal breaker. I like the Mandel and I like the Mandel and the germaphobe probably. <laughs> okay. I think the Mandel makes sense. Right. And then it's still his name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you heard it here. Maybe first. And uh, thanks for uh, laughing with us, Tony. And I know, Jason Ellis, that you're laughing with us. All right. Uh, thanks, Brian, for ch- right. chiming back in. And uh, hopefully I'll talk um, to you soon. No problem. Hopefully I get my get my credit back. But it is gnarly. But there's it, but it means so much more to me to have a, a Tony Hawk move named after me. I think that yeah. means a lot. Beep, 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 beep. And now another first impression from Christian Svitek. My first impression of Danforth and the first time I guess I saw him are, are kind of two different things. Um, Danforth was actually one of the first pros I ever saw live in person. Um, it was at this concert theater place I saw. I would always go see like punk bands and metal bands play in the 80s and 90s. And it was, um, there was this, this show that came to town <clears throat> and it was... Uh, this band called the Lip Trick Organ Grinders was gonna play. None of us cared about that. More importantly, there was they were coming with these pro skaters, and it was Matt Hensley, I think Eddie Radigi, Steve Ortega, and Bill Danforth. And at this time, like I said, I think this was summer 1991. I had never seen a pro skateboarder in real life before, and so. This band played, <clears throat> I mean, it's sad to say nobody cared. Like, I think everybody was there to see the pros. And, um, you know, it was in a, in a concert venue, and there was a mini ramp on the stage, and Hensley, Ortega, Radigi, and Danforth were all skating. Um, so there was that, which was cool for me. You know, it just kind of blew my mind to see pro skateboarders in real life. But then um, my first real good impression of Danforth didn't come until um, the late 90s. I had moved to California and I, I think I had just turned pro. This is, I think, 1999. And I was uh, pretty good friends with everybody over at Transworld Magazine um, and Mickey Vukovic. And so uh, Mickey, had a, I think he had a pretty good... Um, take on me he knew that I was even though I was a young guy I was really into the history of skateboarding he really knew that um, I really still held 
like the the older generation on a pedestal you know um all the guys that were pro back in the 80s were you know will i mean they they were and they still are like <clears throat> the ones that i kind of always revered and anyways uh, mickey goes to me the one day he goes hey christian just wanted to give the heads up uh bill danforth is coming to town i'm gonna take him skating this weekend we're gonna go to the vista skate park at like and it was like some crazy time. It was like six or seven in the morning they were going to go. And he was like, I just thought you'd, you might want to know, like, you can come meet Bill Danforth. And I just thought that was super cool um, uh, for Mickey, Mickey to do that, you know? Um, I, don't know. I guess to have that intuition about me that I, I guess he just, he knew that I would really be stoked to meet Bill Danforth, you know? I never said that or anything, but I think he just kind of got the kind of kid I was, you know? So I was like, all right, man, of course. Of course I want to skate with Bill Danforth. So that morning um, I went to the Vista Skate Park and I don't know, six, seven in the morning, and it was Mickey and Danforth, and I think he was with, maybe it was one or two other guys, I don't remember, but it was my first time meeting Bill. And, uh, you know, we skated together, and it was super cool because Bill, you know, he's an old Detroit guy. And I always heard rumors that he had connections to Ohio and even kind of the Cleveland area where I'm from. And, you know, it was just really cool because he was like the old veteran pro and I was like the new rookie pro. And he just had, you know, just really cool stuff for me, really cool stuff to tell me just, you know, um, you know, just since everything was just starting for me, he was kind of, I don't know, not so much, get, well, I guess kind of like giving me advice and just, just kind of being like a really cool mentor mentor figure you know and yeah it was super cool because I, I was kind of nervous at the time like oh man i'm meeting danforth for the first time how's this gonna be you know but he was just such a cool guy and really that was the beginning of a friendship that still goes today and i've done many tours with with bill and we keep in touch on the phone a lot and try to get together whenever we can and um yeah i guess that's uh kind of the first story of he was one of the first pros I ever met, and then my first impression when I actually, you know, got to meet him uh, later in life. Yeah, man. Bill's a great guy, man. I love him. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden, and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Hey, we got a new beanie on the website at TalkingSchmidt.com. Did a limited run of some embroidered scorpions on a black beanie. And we also, I think, have a few of those safety green ones. So get to TalkingSchmidt.com, support the show, and keep your head warm. Hey, do we have this? We have this. We're back. Whatever, man. No more fire alarms. Hey, that was the first time ever. Well, hey, you know what? First time's always the best, man. Like the first time you grind over the death box, man. It's all the same. It's all good. Both situations, you want to be safe. You just need to make it. (laughs) Yeah. You made it. I made it. We made it. We made it. We made it. We're back. How you doing? You good? I'm good, man. A little uh, warm in Florida these days, but hey, it's better than the cold. Yeah. 
I'll take it. That's good for the body. But man, when I, we just went to Hawaii and it was like, my body felt so good out there in that climate. Then you come back home and then your body sucks, right? Yeah. It's cold right now here. Definitely. Where are you? San Francisco. You're not that cold. No, it's not freezing or nothing. So, hey, where'd we leave off last time? Well, the alarm got set off by the word Savannah Slamma. We better fire it up with the contest review. What was was that like? That was a big deal in fucking late 80s. Well, because you know what? It was so cool because the Savannah Slamma was done pretty much independently by just, uh, you know, a skate and surf shop on the coast. They saw what, you know, skateboarding was doing and they did one contest and invited so many people to came over, you know, to come to it. And at that time when they had an arena and built a street course in there and got pros, I mean, we had so many Savannah Slammers after that. They never would have done it if the first one was a flop. Yeah. And the thing is, all us skaters that, you know, entered that contest all went and talked about it and went, talked about how cool that contest was because there was no pressure. There was no nothing. It really didn't even you know, ranking like the NSA back then. Oh. It was an independent contest. Okay. Uh, not independent of the truck company, but, <laughs> you know, just like off the grid. Right. We all had a blast there, man. It's like, why not go, you know, skate another street contest? Because we never took them serious. Yeah. Us old bird riders looked at those street contests like an easy weekend. Steve Olson was picking his nose at the friggin' skater. We never looked at that like any kind of heavy stress because street contests didn't mean the things that they do now because that's a, a whole separate thing. Yeah. You got nothing but street skaters that go to, you know, street league and do that. But back then, you know, it was like you had street skaters, but then you had vert skaters that just went there for the basically the weekend vacation. <laughs> what did what was the attitude with the courses and stuff in the beginning when street skating just started? There was like a lot of jump ramps and still r- ramps. And I remember people kind of talking about like, is that really street? You know, like Hasoy's flying off and doing a method off the ramp and getting in the top three when other people are just ollieing and doing more street-based stuff. It was all about show. Uh, it was all about what was going to be in the magazine, you know, Christian Hasoy launching off a launch ramp on the cover of Thrasher doing a big old Christ there in his Jimmy Z's. <laughs> you just sold a lot of money of advertising so don't <laughs> tell me that that shit wasn't corporate mm. that shit was all corporate back then okay trust huh. me i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell you the way i saw it yeah that's what it was all about and i am guilty of church too it's huh. like 
you know, if I could get my life's a beach shirt in a really good picture, I know I'm getting paid. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not going to get the cover of Thresher or Transworld because the clothing company doesn't pay enough money into the magazine to take that many ads out. Uh, you only got a cover if you paid that kind of money. I grew up in Detroit. Skateboarding had a mafia. <laughs> and so did Detroit. But ours was like 50 years before the skateboard mafia. Uh, Everything was all hooked up. Uh, speaking of the Life's of Beach, the Bad Boy Club, I think you're wearing the, the it right now. That was mo modeled after you, yeah? Uh, somewhat. I just... <laughs> Ended up like very early in the days of Life's of Beach hooking up with them. I just kind of adopted it. I'm like, I'm a fucking bad boy. You know, expect something out of me. You're going to get it. Uh huh. But then after you got it, don't expect the rest out of me for the rest of the weekend. So the drawing of the guy actually wasn't, it wasn't modeled after you. No, it was uh -huh. not. But then it came out and you embraced it. The thing is, I enforced it afterwards. Oh, okay. There you go. Mark Boogaloo was a guy from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. He was the one that drew the original Bad Boy Club logo. Oh, okay. A lot of people really don't give Boogaloo the credit that he deserves, but he was the one at the time at Life's Beach between him and this other artist, Doe's, that really um, created Life's the Beach to be what it was. Because, you know what, it wasn't just a skate brand. It was a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. And we loved all the shit we did with them because it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to skate on the stage of a nightclub one night. And then the next day, they're like, you're going to Tahiti and you're going to go do demos there. <laughs> okay, I guess I'm going to Tahiti. That's cool. Yeah. Fuck. Sick. They had those ones that were like the Jetsons on the shorts too, right? Oh, yeah. We had the Jetsons. All you had to do is just do some funny shit that nobody else had done. Right. Fucking geniuses? Yeah. Short-lived? Yeah. You know, I mean, we did the Three Stooges. Uh, you know, so you're of, of course, you're going to get one pair of Larry. You're going to get one pair of Mo and one pair of Curly. Yep. Wow. You just sold three pairs of shorts. That's marketing. Jinx. <laughs> yeah. Because you want to collect them all. OK. Fuck. Yeah. You got any uh, stories of Dan Sturt? He, he grew up in your area. No. Yeah. No. Dan Sturt. Uh, he was always a stand-up guy. He was uh, kind of in the old days of punk rock in Detroit since he was of big stature. He always kind of controlled the pit, huh? you know. He looked like Frankenstein a little bit, so he always <laughs> kind of controlled the pit. Always wore a Wonder Bread shirt. Uh. But now Dan Sturt was uh, a cool guy, you know. And then, like, when he moved to California... He got to hook up with some really good people that furthered his, you know, his photography. And he shot some badass photos. Absolutely. 
but you know, he was a guy that lived like a Midwesterner. You know, he lived in his VW Golf forever and ate, you know, peanut butter and uh, bread sandwiches all the time. Uh-huh. But the thing is, it's like he didn't go out there and, you know, move into some high rise apartment. He went there and he lived the life. Okay. And it took a little while because, you know, he had an attitude, but you know what? We all did come from the Midwest. We weren't going to go to the West Coast and act like a bunch of fucking kiss asses. We went to the West Coast and said, this is where we're from. This is what we're all about. You like us or you don't. And he kept that attitude up. So, man, big thumbs up to Dan Stark. Yeah, big fan. I mean, he's taken some iconic photos throughout the years. And the story of him sniping the Danny Way photo, like spending the night or whatever he did to, to beat Transworld to the photos, always, that's all time for me. It was so well. That's all Midwest Mafia there, bro. <laughs> get on it before the getting on it is too late. Yeah, it's good shit. Uh, Okay, we got to talk about um, the Mongo pushing your thoughts on this. I know like a lot of people say you're one of the few people that got a pass for it. Like a lot of people get ridiculed. Uh, You kind of like made it your own or whatever. Like what's the deal? What what are your thoughts? I'm going to go down in history. I'm going to go down for something. And this question is asked to me very often. I can imagine. Okay, first of all, anytime anybody drops in, they drop in Mongo. Back foot on the tail for front <laughs> foot on later. So yeah. fuck all you guys. <laughs> the other thing is, as long as you're pushing a skateboard, why does it matter how you push? Second of all, Jake Phelps at Thrasher Magazine got really sick one time about having nothing to write about. So he decided to create Mongo foot and write about something that really has no sense. Uh, did Jake come out with Mongo? I can't ask him because he is not around anymore. Yeah. But basically he was the one that pushed that all around the industry that I push fucking Mongo. Uh. Last all these fuckers that want to, you know, get all pissed off at me that I push Mongo. I still beat most of them in the street contest so they can go suck a fucking dick. <laughs> you want to talk about my style? I did better tricks, so fuck who cares about how you push. Was there any tricks that you looked at that you that you thought were gross that you wouldn't do? Like we always were like kind of not going to do a layback air or like frontside air grab between your legs. Like were you thinking about things like that at all? Uh, well, you know, at certain times, it's like, you know, it was about learning the trick. Frontside air, perfect example. You know, you're going to do it sink bug. You do it sink bug to learn. But then you learn style afterwards. And you're like, wow, I tuck knee, you know, or you tuck knee with boning it out. Mm. You know, and a lot of that. You know, too, a lot of that, it was like from the style of like Chris Miller. (sighs) Chris Miller had the, and still has the best style in the world. Yeah. It's so fluid and so. Yeah, it's it's textbook. It's effortless. 
right? You know? Yeah. He does everything. Everything he does looks good. And it looks like it's all meant to be together as well. And he doesn't have a plan in his head what he's going to do. It's just routine for him. Yeah. Because that's natural flow. You know, let's say you come off the wall sketchy. And you're like, well, I, you know, I can't do that lean air here. But then you might do a backside air alley-oop. And then go into a wall differently. And then decide to change his, you know, entire course out. It's just what happens. Right. You know, um, happened all the time, you know, in like the street skating contest back in the 80s. It's like, wow, okay, I planned to do this, but wow, I fucked up. And now that wasn't what I planned on. So now I'm going to push my ass off to get up to <laughs> the vert wall. Yeah. Because I just fucked up a simple trick, but I got to go do something now that. Nobody would expect. Ohio Skate Out, after my first, like, two runs there, there's no way I would have gotten the funnels if I didn't drop off that fucking stupid 12-foot wall. Yeah. <laughs> I got the crowd all going. I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to do this. And everybody's like, yeah, do it, do it, do it. Yeah. I did. Rock and rolls on the big vert wall. I did laybacks on there. That wasn't good enough. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to drop right off the fucking side. <laughs> How did street survival come about? My buddy, uh, George, likewise, for Modern Skate and Surf, he has been into selling skateboards and stuff since, you know, the late 70s. And I had hooked up with him several times, like in the 80s. You know, we were both from Michigan. For 30 years, I worked for the guy teaching all the skate camps and doing all his demos and everything. Uh-huh. But in the 80s, when it came, he's like, I want to do an instructional video. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm down for doing that because I was hap- I was going to be living in um, Michigan for the summer. And I'm like, yeah, we can film all this stuff. So we filmed all that. And, you know, it's really funny to watch because it is very instrumental. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's like a cult video now. Yeah, people love it. But, you know, that's in the Smithsonian Institute. Oh, is it? That was the first skateboard video that got inducted in the Smithsonian. And right after that, my skateboard got inducted in the Smithsonian. Oh, that's awesome. Was there was that the first instructional video? Was there other instructional videos at the time? No, there were tons before that. Okay. But at the time when it became something that was, you know, quote, up to date, wasn't like one of those 65 videos of like, oh, yeah, you know, you're skating down the street on a skateboard, you know, wear shoes. Yeah. (laughs) It was just like one of these, uh, yeah, we're going to do something that's somewhat up to date. It was just my friend's idea. Mm -hmm. And I stood by him and I'm like, hell yeah. Now it's a fucking cult film. I've seen him sell on the VHS tapes on eBay for 250 bucks. 
No way. Fuck. If anyone wants one, I got one for 225. All right. No, you know I'm fucking with you. I ain't going to sell my original copy. They don't care about DVDs, but they care about the VHS tapes. I don't even have a VCR. My kid wants to trade cars with me now because I still have a tape deck in my car. Oh, yeah. And he's like, well, I got Bluetooth and, you know, a CD player in my car. He's like, let's trade. I'm like, no, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) What about favorite skate film of all time? We're going to go back to some things that are going to be probably a little bit obscure. Um, the Salem story about the oldest skate park in Vancouver. Oh, I don't know this one. The Devil's Toy. That's the one I was thinking you were going to love the Devil's Toy. That was big because that is just it's poetic, you know. None of the Powell videos. No, those are too choreographed. What is happening? I just remember, too, a lot of other Midwestern videos that came out of the time. I can't really put a name on them. But, uh, you know, these guys that shot some really rare footage Hmm. and put them out on a V, you know, horribly edited. I mean, our Alva videos, they were horrible. <laughs> Even to the standards at the time, uh, Backyard Annihilation, there was a good job on that. Okay. Uh, Young Guns, there was a good job on that for the time period. But at the time period when we did that, you know, Santa Cruz was coming out with rad shit. Yeah. Vision, of course, was coming out with the rad stuff. But the roots weren't there for the companies, you know, like Alva. So I think at the time, the Alva fans expected rough footage, you know, maybe beer spilled on the film, you know. Uh-huh. But it was just our rough edge that I think was the thing that, you know, sent us into that rather scene of followers that right. were just like, fuck it, you know, we're not going to be the Bones Brigade. We're not going to be GNS. We're going to grow up being Alva guys. Mm. So they grew their hair out, got kicked out of their parents' house, didn't take showers for a while. Who's, who on Alva? I got a... Uh... I got Fred Smith, I got you, and I got John Gibson. Who should I try to get next out of the Alva? Murph? Oh, God. Murph, hell yeah. That's okay. I'll give him a call tonight. Murph okay. and I talk every day, or we talk every week. Uh-huh. Okay, he's Jim Murphy. I'm half a Murphy, Murphy <laughs> because my mom was a Murphy. <laughs> and yesterday, St. Patrick's Day, so, oh, yeah. you know. No, me and Murph are bros, man. We used to travel a lot together. I traveled more with Murph than I did anyone else on album. Oh, really? Okay. Rad. Oh, so we got stories for days. Where's he living? He lives in Queens, uh, New York. Oh, he's in New York. Okay. Fuck yeah. He's a stained glass refinisher. Like, he goes and they remove these 
you know, $20,000 windows from churches and stuff. Oh, man. And he restores every single piece, piece by piece. He's a lost art. And he was also the only one on Alva that ever got a college education. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. Makes sense. Most of the guys probably dropped out of high school, right? I think we all finished. Finished uh, high school. I, at least I went to college for a little while. I have two eighth grade diplomas. Now we all knew what the future was going to hold. You just had to work for it, and you had to have that dedication. I didn't have any focus when I was in college, and I still went through and got, you know, straight A's. Yeah. But no, my attitude was. No, I need to get to California if I'm going to do anything. And that was 1985. Okay. If I was going to make, because I was already sponsored, I had already been to California. I'd already skated contests in California. If I didn't make that move, if I would have waited a year, I don't think I would have been able to do what I did. Timing. So I made a huge choice. Yeah. And it was a big life choice. And, you know, sometimes, your first instinct is the best one you can have and pursue your dreams. If you can believe in yourself, go out there and fucking find it and do it or uh, go fuck yourself. And, you know, I don't know, work a target. Yeah. Let's talk about music a little bit. Um, I know you were in like a documentary uh, from back in the Detroit area, right? Yep. Dope hookers and pavement. What what's the difference between Chicago and Detroit for for music scenes in your mind? I mean, those would have been the two closest big cities, right? Yeah, and then you also got Cleveland too. And Cle- uh, the one thing about Detroit is, all right, Detroit was really tight knit. You know, the skinheads got along with the punks. The punks got away. Detroit was very multiracial uh, not aggressive Uh you had issues in Chicago where you know you got all these oi boys and you got a huge skinhead scene that was super aggressive Cleveland was the same way too Cleveland kind of had a scene at the time where it didn't matter if you were black or white if you were a dick you were getting punched out Detroit was going of a scene where we accepted everybody, became friends with everybody. It didn't matter whatever level you were on, whatever color you were on. It was just about the fact that you're coming and you're paying $3 to go see Negro Approach play. They, they were the big band out of Detroit. Yeah, and I was either. Yeah. Okay, a fucking stupid fly got on my phone and I <laughs> went to go hit it and I moved out. Um, no, the thing is, it's like Detroit was hard, but it was also kind of. Okay. Where scenes like Cleveland and scenes like Chicago were a lot rougher. Okay. We had some huge events that happened in Detroit you know, that were racially motivated. But you still, you had, you know, the camaraderie of your brothers, white or black, 
that would help you out like during the minor threat right in Detroit. Mm. We grew too big for our small space, you know, it overflowed in the streets in the fucking part of the ghetto. As Brandon said, you know, it was nothing but dope hookers and pavement. That's what downtown Cass Avenue in Detroit was at the time. Now they're fucking half a million dollar suites. Jesus. And I'm like, fuck, I used to piss on this place. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now I'm pissing on a fucking you know, $10 million building. I, I feel they stole our ghetto. You can't stop forward progress because you know what? We were there first. But it's a gnarly town. I mean, we were skating there one time and the cops came and they pulled over and they told us to leave because they'll see you and they'll get you. That's what they told us. We're like, fuck. Where were you skating? Hard Plaza? No, we were skating some loading dock banks. I forget exactly where, but uh, uh, it was probably just not in a good neighborhood, apparently. <laughs> All you need to do is give them a Newport fucking menthol and fucking a dollar, and they'll let you stay there all day long. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, shit. But were you at the Minor Threat right? Oh, hell yeah. I, I never missed the show in Detroit from... Oh, God, probably 1980 till about 1984 before I moved to California. I never missed a single show there. What ha What was it? Was it an outdoor show or was it an indoor? What happened? No, it was at the Fraser Theater. Oh, it was. And there was just oh, yeah, too many it, people? That shut down the Fraser Theater. That show? You know, even like Google Fraser Theater, that'll probably come up. But no, that was our club that... You, Honestly, you could only fit like, I don't know, maybe 45 people in there. <laughs> and we'd get like 340 people in there. And the Misfits played there. Black Flag played there. Black Flag pl played at the clubhouse, which was down the street after the Freezer Theater closed. That one, you really couldn't fit more than 35 people in. Mm -hmm. At the end of that early 80s uh, social distortion tour when they were on there with Youth Brigade. They made the movie about that. Uh -huh. But no, they played the clubhouse. I mean, if you got 50 people in there, you're squeezed. And there was like 250, 300 people there. And what at the Minor Threat show, was there just like a thousand? Like, how, why did it turn into a riot? There was way more people than they could fit in or well, the neighborhood got involved because they're like, wow, there's all these people here to rob. Wow, what are we going to do? Go rob punk rockers? They uh, don't have anything. Yeah. What are we going to do? Take their recyclable, you know, 40-ounce bottle for 10 cents? <laughs> Were they there for the returnables? Yeah. Probably. It just turned into a riot, and it was in June, and it was hot as fuck in Detroit. Yeah. So the temperature goes up and the natives all get restless. Right. Okay. Was there a show that sticks out to you from all the years that like the bill was insane that you seen, like you saw like one of the best shows ever? Yes, I do. First time I used my fake ID. 
Uh. I went and saw the UK subs and anti nowhere league play at the original city club in Detroit. And I'm like, wow, my ID worked. (laughs) I didn't have to sneak up in the elevator. I'm like, I actually walked through the door. I paid $5 to go see UK subs and anti nowhere league. So was that, and that was even before negative approach would warm up for them. Uh, Okay. And I'm like, wow, this is fucking it. This is fucking punk rock. I was 15. Was that one of your first punk shows then? No, I had gone to punk shows before that. Okay. But uh, but this was the first one that like, you had to fake, had to use an ID. Like this was an actual venue, not a ghetto club. Okay. Or wow. like a garage, you know? Yeah. It was huge. I mean, we had bands from fucking England coming over. We'd all listened to UK subs. We had just started listening to Anti Nowhere League. You know, Anti Nowhere League opened up the show playing So What and closed the show playing So What. You know, and I'm like, wow, I just heard that fucking twice. Fucking Don't give a fuck. Who, who do you think's best American punk band of all time? No, I'm not going to answer that. No, you're going to get me killed somewhere. Uh, <laughs> what about best version of Black Flag? Who's the which which singer were you most into? Keith Morris. Keith Morris. Yeah, no, because. No, nah, I'm not even going to I'm not even going to justify anybody else. It was Keith Morris. Right. I'm really good friends with, you know, Chavo. Uh huh. Because Chavo used to print all our skull skateboards. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's sick. But now, the first time you heard Black Flag was Keith Morris. So to me, that's Black Flag. I'm old. I'm fucking punk. (laughs) You got any G.G. Allen stories? Did you ever see him? Oh, God. You want to know the time I beat the shit out of him? (laughs) Sure. Right in front of fucking Salva. (laughs) What? Oh, yeah. Right in front of fucking Salva at the show in San Diego. Um, I lived. It was right in Pacific Beach. He played this fucking ghetto. Gigi Allen played the Ghetto Club in 92. Now, Gigi Allen came in fucking jackboots on, all naked, shitting all over the floor, throwing shit all over everybody. He threw shit on my fiance. And I got pissed off. So he went and he sang his couple of songs and he went in the middle of the dance floor at the club. And he stood on a bar stool and he hung on the chandelier. So what do I do? I'm all fucking wasted. What do I do? I go kick the fucking chair out from under him. <laughs> so the chandelier comes right down on him. Oh, shit. He didn't give a shit. Probably not. So, okay, that was probably 
like March of 92. So then you go skip to um, June or July of 92. And my wife and I had moved to Detroit at the time where I'm from. G-Challenge was playing there. You know, the guy doesn't remember shit. Somehow he remembered me. Oh, really? He walks in, same thing, you know, shitting all over the place and Jack Boots <laughs> completely fucking naked, takes the stage. Everybody's booing him. Everybody's throwing shit at him. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go tell that fucker what I think of him. Go fuck yourself, you know, go back to New Hampshire. So he picks up a fucking glass ashtray and throws it at me and fucking puts like a four-inch scar in my head. Oh, damn. Then he wants to come at me. And he's fighting everybody in the club. And everybody in the club is like, you know, fuck you, you slimy bastard. (laughs) They played four songs and got kicked off the fucking stage and basically taken out, but J.J. Allen was so full of shit that night, literally. literally. Like, he he basted himself in fucking feces. Then he died nine days later. Oh, damn. Rough ride right there. And guess what? I didn't shed a motherfucking tear. <laughs> oh, God. You know, if I would have known better than at that time, I would have sold my shirts on fucking eBay. I used those as rags for fucking screen printing. Oh, fuck. Yeah, those things would be worse than dough. I got a couple uh, questions from Kristen Svitak. He said to say hello. All um, right. Hey, I love he just had a birthday the other day. Yeah, exactly. He's a good dude. He's been on the show before. Uh, his first question, how to survive the streets. Buy a good tent, buy good rope, meet good chicks. Uh, and then he wanted to see if you'd tell the story about a tour in Texas for a month in the middle of winter with a stray cat and what the oh. cat's name was and why you named it that. Okay, uh, the cat was named Nighty Night. Nighty Night? Chad Knight got the cat. So, of course, Chad Knight named it after himself. <laughs> he also, the night that we found that cat in Houston, Houston, Texas area, it was a city out, I think it was Bay City, Texas. Oh, he loved that cat. We all took care of that cat. We changed his litter box. We had that motherfucking cat through the snowstorms. And then fucking Chad takes a cat all the way back out to San Diego and then gives it to somebody. Oh, my God. You got another fly. This is the time. This is about the time where you need a joke. But we got him back. Hold on. We had another fly. No, stupid phone. Yeah, modern technology at its finest. Was that before or after uh, Chad Knight was in American Gladiator? I think it was after. That was a poor performance by Mr. Knight. You want to know a little more Chad Knight history? Sure. His first sponsor was Ohio Surf and Skate, which turned into Bill Danforth's Pro Shops. Whoa. 
So is Deerdex. Oh, shit. Deerdex's first sponsor was with my shop that I had with Jimmy George in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, you know, Deerdex's mom used to drop them off at my house and I'd take them to the ramp and stuff. Okay. There's a little kid riding GNS boards. Uh, crazy. You're riding for ramps then. Deerdex. Yeah. Wow. You got a best Stone Edge skate park memory? Oh, besides burying a bunch of roaches in the coping? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we smoked a lot of pot when we worked on that part, at least. But um, no, I just remember showing up here in Daytona saying, I live in Daytona. You guys, you need some help. And it was a hookup through, uh, I got from Mark Lake. Huh. He's like, I've tried to deal with these people. I backed out and I'm like, I'm living in Daytona and they're going to build a park. I was there before groundbreak and there were a lot of suggestions that I made to them that worked at the time. You know, obviously the skate park had to evolve. Yeah. And had to turn into something different because that was at the end of the time of like vert ball riding, you know, and of course, you had to have a fucking half pipe. But I'm like, this is only going to be temporary because you're going to have to crumble this because this is where skateboarding's going. And then they built the street course. And then it turned into some Christian skate park. Uh. Like a lot does in, you know, the Southeast. There's a lot of Christian base down here, which I'm all for, uh. you know. Um, if it gets kids skateboarding yeah, and they can learn something, maybe they're going to be better individuals because, you know, we got a lot of really fucked up individuals now that haven't had guidance. Yeah, it's true. And it pisses me off when I see them that they, you know, they grow up to be 40, 45 years old and they're still fucking like 12 years old. 2022 is a lot tougher than 1987 for that kind of stuff too. People aren't people aren't allowing all the the shit shenanigans and hijinks anymore. Nobody wants to work for anything. They think they're all entitled, and they think that you know the world's owed to them. Right. Hey, you know all the time that I was in my professional skateboard career, when I would take months off. You know what I'd do? I'd go work construction. Uh, I'd go paint. I'd go frame, build homes, uh, anything. Sure. Just took my mind off what I was doing. Yeah. It kept me centered. It kept me level. You know, because I'm like, I love a hard day's work. I'm from fucking Detroit. You know, <laughs> this is what we're supposed to do. Right. You know. Skateboarding was just a fucking bonus. Mm-hmm. One of the skateboard companies were like, well, why don't you paint our building? Fuck yeah. <laughs> Let me get off tour and I'll go paint your fucking building. I don't give a shit. Yeah. It was like a good way to take the edge off of like being on tour and always having to be, you know, on spot for stuff. It's like, fuck, you don't think about anything when you paint. Yeah. It's like fishing. What's up with American Nomad? 
we're doing good. We're plugging away. You know, we always have an issue with our manufacturer. We like to kind of keep it limited and keep the demand high. So do you do small runs? We do small runs, only 50 at a time. And if I'm lucky if I get 50 at a time. We got tons of models. We got tons of skaters for us. But what we always do is the third week of September, we have a huge like bull jam at our compound up in Connecticut. Uh-huh. We have nothing but good people that surround us. Uh. We don't care about being huge. We don't care about, you know, trying to take over anybody else's sales. We just do what we want. Uh-huh. Whatever we get from our manufacturer, we get and we sell. And it's a close-knit family. Okay. Which is what I think skateboarding needs to be. For sure. 100%. We're not looking to, you know, bank out on this company. Mm. We're just looking to make a United States manufactured product, put good product under people's feet, and invite everybody to come have a good time and feel like you're a part of something. Mm-hmm. My partner, Jay Kelly, he's a tattoo artist. He's drawn a lot of stuff. Um, some of his other uh, partners in the shop. One guy did a lot of graphics for Black Label. Mm, okay. Um, Pat. But he works in the tattoo shop now. Um, he comes up with a bunch of shapes, some killer shapes, and he comes up with some killer graphics. But, you know, in the last couple of years, I'd say the last three or four years, it's been really tough for us to get ports. Yeah. But, you know, we had a we had a veneer shortage for a while. And then with COVID. Yeah, COVID, everybody was having a hard time getting boards. I think COVID was just one of the reasons why people are like, yeah, I need to take two weeks off work. Uh, (laughs) You know, I had COVID. I know what it was like, and it sucked. Uh But, you know, when I see, you know, even some of my employees saying, and this is just at my work. Oh, yeah, it's just positive COVID. Well, yeah, you got quarantined for a week. Then I see him at the fucking beer store. Oh, my friend! You know, eat a bag on that one. Well, what else are you doing on the set? What are you doing in Florida? I'm retiring down here. Are you? Like I got my retirement job. You know, I'm a building manager at a huge facility. And no more paint. I screen print in my garage. I skate with my kid. I go, you know, to... You know, guest judge some of these Florida contests. Uh-huh. I'm taking it easy, you know, but busier than I ever been. Huh. I got two teenagers to raise that are my stepkids. You know, my wife owns a store. So every time everything breaks, I'm Mr. Fix It. <laughs> you seem to be quite a cook, too, huh? You're doing a lot of uh, uh, recipes. I love to cook, and everybody that's harping me about when's the Danforth cookbook coming out? When's uh-huh. that coming out? My wife is hyping me. My kids are saying, we'll film it. We'll do that. Uh-huh. And you know me, I'm like, yeah, we'll get around to it. We'll get to it. 
Yeah, put it on the list. <laughs> but there's never an empty plate around the house every night, you know. Nice. And I work for a couple other, uh, not work for, but support a lot of other uh, skateboarder companies that like make seasonings and hot sauces. So it's like I always throw those in on my posts because uh-huh. it's, it's skater oriented. Right. You know, like Lee Bones Meat Duster. Best stuff. I met him at SkaterCon. He walked up to me and he's like, try these seasonings. I'm like, all right, what? So he's just touching my tongue. He's like, no, take those home and try them. Uh-huh. That was seven years ago. Best man at my first wedding was the head director at Cordon Bleu. And I'm like, dude, you got to try the seasoning. And he's like, that's part of the recipe now. So here I get a parking lot seasoning guy. And then all of a sudden I got it in Lake Cordon Bleu. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, hooked, I hooked my buddies up. It's what it's all about. It's what skateboarding started about, especially like me being from the Midwest, going to California. If I wouldn't have known people, I'd have never gotten invited to any backyard pools. Right. If I would have just shown up and been like fucking a nobody, they wouldn't have been like, hey, we got this killer ditch here. We got this killer thing here. Do you, you know, do you want to go skate with us? Mm-hmm. But it was just a matter of one of those things where it's like, you go out there and you just be cool. You don't go out there and be a dick. Exactly. But then at certain times, you got to stand up for yourself. Yeah. Did you, throughout all your travel and stuff, is there one place that someone took you to that sticks out as being one of the raddest places you went with a skateboard? That's a loaded question. That's a big one. Yeah. I got another one too, that, that uh, the Mount Rushmore right. of skateboarding. So. All right. One at a time. <laughs> My favorite things to skate are old abandoned skate parks. Ah. Some maybe I rode when they were open. Some maybe I only rode when they were abandoned. And sometimes they're only pieces. Uh, okay. Edgewater, New Jersey. Fred Smith and Murph are driving to a contest in uh, Arkansas. Fred Smith blows a starter. <laughs> Middle of the night, they pull over into this place that says auto parts. They sleep in the car that night. Sunrise comes up. Auto parts place still isn't open. They realize Edgewater Skate Park is behind the auto parts place. <laughs> oh, shit. 70s. All like snake runs. Some of it's full of water. Some of it's full of auto parts. But they're like, fuck. I'm going to get a starter, but then we're going to go right this old 70s skate park. Rad. Yeah. So the word gets out. The park ends up getting emptied. We're there on a tracker tour. And we're like, dude, we're going through Edgewood. We got to go to the skate park. We went and skated it, you know. I mean, it was it was a seventy skate park, but it's like how this fossil got found was because my teammates broke down on the way to a fucking contest. <laughs> yeah, 
That's amazing. I love that one. Holy I love shit like that. Yeah. You know, because it's like being an archaeologist. It's like you go to a place and you're like, wow, that's not natural stone. Was there a skate park here? Right. Oh, maybe there was. Start digging. I heard they're trying to get the turf pieced back together up in Milwaukee. I know. And I love the fact that they're going to, you know, put all that effort in there. But I'm just sorry that the turf's going to be a kook show after that. (laughs) There's going to be too much media on this. You saved an old skate park. Yes, I want to ride it once. Again, uh, it's never going to be the same. No, but it's going to be a kook show for sure. Sorry, Sam. I love the fact that they're going to do it. Yeah, but I think it's a, I think it's a long, far-fetched project. You know, it's like look at and like I was saying about the old '70s skate parks. Look, Lansdowne's still there. I love Lansdowne, Maryland. Yeah, I got this, I, I see I, that one. I do the downer every time I'm there. Now, in the late 80s, even in the 90s, I mean, Reading Skate Park was just up there. Reading Skate Park was so much fun. Uh, You know, sometimes they had people that occupied it, you know, and charged you like three bucks to ride it. And there were other times it was just empty. I rode that when it was brand new. Oh, sick. So now every time I get to go, or every time I got to go back there, uh, I ended up getting a centerfold in uh, Transworld from Reading. And then there's this Indian guy. His name was Yolf. He was the one that says, oh, yeah, it's $3 for everybody to skate. He's like, oh, but not for you, Danforth. He's like, Danforth, go get a Diet Pepsi from the you know, the Pepsi machine. <laughs> like, I don't want to fucking diet Pepsi. He's like, no, you hit lower diet Pepsi. I'm like, okay, Ralph. All right, fine. Guess what? Came out a big old green Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> we used to do that at Thrasher. We would put fucking beers in the Coke machine and people would fucking get a thing and be like, what the fuck? I love it. I mean, it's like the old stories of like the old timer guys from the past. You know, who cares about all modern skateboarding with the street league and the Olympics and all the X Games crap? Skateboarding to us was grass fucking words. Right. Yeah, for sure. So that leads into like, it's, is it too hard to pick four people that go on a mountain dedicated to skateboarding? My guess is you can Tony Alva. Okay. Well, Tony Alva has to stand on top. Okay. <laughs> and then Olsen. Then it's Olsen. Huh? Then it's Hackett. Huh? And then it's Jay Adams at the bottom. Okay. Because Jay Adams would not want to be on top. <laughs> never wanted to be on top and all you have to do is watch the dog time on z boys movie he didn't want to be anybody's hero mm. he just wanted to be jay adams fucking the best he would be at the bottom yeah man have you seen and of course ta has got to be at the top yeah because <laughs> he he doesn't want to be at the bottom 
or anywhere else. <laughs> shit. Dude, thanks uh, for... You're getting some good shit right now. A conversation between me and Ian McKay back in 1982 at the Fraser Theater in Detroit on Cass Avenue. We were discussing uh, modern skateboarding, and it was Tony Alva versus Tony Hawk. And I said, nobody can take any style away from Tony Alva. But I said, Tony Hawk is going to be the future skateboarder. I left it at that. Walked away from him because he was a douchebag. Now, it's true that style goes a lot more further than tricks but for him to even like put those two in the same category yeah, they weren't in the same category then and that's why I was like you know one of those things where you just agree to disagree I hate where skateboarding has been going you know it's fucking not cool anymore. And that's why you have to choose and pick your buddies to make skateboarding cool again. You know, it's like when skateboarding becomes so legal, why the fuck did we start? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we do it? What's our, what's our goal? You got these big corporations in it already. Like it's hard to see it. I mean, we're small potatoes compared to like. They're all involved in the skateboard industry too, which is the thing that fucks me up because none of them gave a shit about the early days of skateboarding, like in the eighties. Right. They didn't. Give it. They were not going to support this. Uh huh. And now they're giving you know people three million dollar contracts. Yeah everything that we did in the past and now we're all flat footed. Now I got these aerodynamic fucking shoes and <laughs> motherfuckers should be sending me some. Mm-hmm. I'll wear them being a gem. <laughs> I need a comfort soul. I mean, what's your outlook on this new era? Like, do you just, are you much into the social media and stuff? Do you stay off the news or do you, do you get pissed off easy? Like, you know what I do is, I don't talk skateboard politics right. on um, social media. Right. I post pictures of food. Okay. Food makes everybody happy. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I think we got a good episode on our hands. There we go. I appreciate you can always it. do episode three. <laughs> Fire part three. <laughs> I'm, I'm always... I'm always down for doing this if you're into it. Okay. Hell yeah. You know what I might do is try to, it'd be kind of fun to do a, uh, get you in like, let's say it was you and Murph at the same time or something. And like, you guys could feed off each other or something. That might be a fun one. Oh, fuck dude. We're, we are really good at that. Okay. Yeah. I'm all, we, we toured a lot together. So you got stories for days. I like chicken wings. What about uh, best air, Indy or slob? Oh, fucking Indy, of course, even though I ride for trackers. The best air is lean, though, right? What's the best air? Well, okay. I mean, Indy airs the backside. 
lean as a front set. Yeah. Uh, lean like a Christian lean Miller crossbone. I don't know. Those, oh, well, those are pretty. We, you stopped talking about Miller because he did the best. He stopped the, he stopped the best lean air ever because he did it. You know, and the lean air was Neil Blender spelled or Neil spelled backwards. backwards. Right. Yeah. Have you seen his company that he's doing the heated wheel? Yeah. I mean, all Neil ever says to me is like, dude, come out to California and let's go skimboarding. Uh, He's good at skimboarding. I got to go with him one day. It was such an honor to watch him. I, I can't do it, but I was watching him and he's killing it. I love Neil. Hey. I was so stoked to film a bunch of my transworld interview at his house. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. You know, his ramp was like three feet tall. And then I got Craig Johnson with me, who's like seven foot tall. Yeah, big dude. Craig Johnson didn't know what the fuck to do on that thing. <laughs> a slappy. <laughs> yeah, to him, it was like a curve. A curve to me, yeah. it was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get these best photos we can. Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. I really appreciate this. It's been really cool. Um, we always end the song, end the show with the song. I'm guessing negative approach or something. Uh, ready to fight. Ah, uh, yeah, that's the, the title. They're ready to fight. Now I take that back. Can't tell no one. Can't tell no one. Okay, negative approach. Uh, right on here. I'm going to sign off. Okay. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Right on, man. Be good. Don't get anybody pregnant this weekend. Okay, you too. (laughs) Take care, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, You can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos.
Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at talkingschmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.